Well, hello, this is Ron Cohen. I'm a tax partner at Greenstein Rogoff Olson & Company. And this is a tax update for the week of March 31st. It is 9.34 a.m. And President Biden just gave out uh, some tax proposed tax law changes. So in today's podcast, we're going to go through those and some of the history behind the corporate tax laws. Uh, we're going to revisit the $10,200 exemption on unemployment benefits as that now has a lot of states are not conforming or, or don't conform to the exemption and fully tax it. Uh, May 17th is the due date for individuals, but to watch out for those first quarter estimated tax payments and and also always think about states that might have different rules. And uh, there's some issues about the IRS sending out notices to people on the earned income tax credit when they didn't even have the form on their website. And then lastly, from my shame, shame, shame department, we're going to talk about the 18-page uh, instruction California has put out for the uh, health uh, health insurance penalty that they imposed once the uh, Obamacare ACA penalty uh, was uh, repealed. California decided to put in their own penalty, and then they made it very, very complex, which is uh, very unfortunate. Okay, so going back to uh, some caveats on a commercial here. Uh, first, take no reliance on anything you hear on this podcast. We consider this intellectual entertainment. In order to be a client and rely on any of this, you have to come in, sign an engagement letter, give us all the facts, all the documents. We go back and think about it, come back with a formal determination. So we're just spitballing here on this podcast. Uh, second of all, plagiarism is absolutely okay. We recite the uh, code, code, IRS code and regulations. Uh, there's many people on the internet who have written brilliant articles. Uh, they're really, really good on Google and so forth. Uh, and those people are out there trying to make themselves uh, uh, get some notoriety, make themselves famous. And it is a-okay to uh, steal and quote whatever's out there in the public, all with the intent to get to the lowest possible legal tax. So plagiarism's okay. We try to avoid politics. Um, sometimes I can't hold back because uh, tax Law is the the result of many political battles. And when a law comes to be or is in process or uh, in debate, uh, certainly I have to mention some of those political arguments going on. Uh, we do tax returns and planning here at the firm. We do home office work for very, very successful people who need that kind of support. Uh, we do about uh, 1,300, 1,400 returns here at the firm. We do planning help people out any way we can. And uh, just so you know, I am no cheerleader for the tax law, no cheerleader at all. I I find it intrusive. I find it uh, invading your, your privacy. I find it uh, making people do what they're called uh, mal-investment. It, it points you to do something that may not be in your best interest, but you get a tax deduction or credit for it because someone decided that's the way they want society to go. Um, uh, it should be easier. I believe you should be able to do your tax return in 10 minutes a year, 10 minutes a year. And in fact, in most of Europe and, and a lot of Asia, you know, the, you, the people with simple situations get a letter from the tax authority or go into the tax authority. The, the tax authority already has all your 1099s and W-2s. They give you a little letter saying, you agree with this? Sign here. Here's your refund or you owe a little bit. 
If you want to go and recompute it, go find a chartered accountant or a CPA or here in U.S. enrolled agents or all kinds of other tax preparers and send us the forms, do it yourself. But for the vast majority of people, April 15th is like no big deal. They just sign a little piece of paper and get their refund. I wish we would go for the vast majority of people to a simpler system. Sorry, I made that a little bit long. Uh, we Just thinking that, again, the tax system here is far too complex and intrusive. And always keep in mind, as we do here at the firm, you try on every return you file and anything you send into the federal or state government, you got to get an A+. Plus. Get an A+. Plus. And no A minuses, no Bs, no Cs. Uh, you got to get an A plus. And that's the way we uh, we practice here. We're at www.groco.com. Our phone number is 510-797-8661, extension 237. And anything you hear in this podcast, I, I put tons of show notes uh, below uh, on, on SoundCloud. And you can drill into what we're talking about and uh, uh, certainly do your own research if you want. But we try to help people out. Happy to give us a call. Happy to talk to anybody, at least for a few minutes, to see if uh, we can help each other uh, try to figure out your taxes. Okay, so moving on. Here we go. So uh, President Biden just put forth a proposal to uh, change the corporate tax structure. Uh, from the in 2017, effective for 2018 under the Trump administration, the corporate tax rate was reduced for this is for what they call C corporations, not S corporations, not LLCs, which are limited liability companies. This is for C. So this that's a chapter of the Internal Revenue Code that's called a C corporation. Uh, the flat rate currently is 21% flat rate. It's not a graduated rate on all your income from the first dollar to the 20th billion dollar the, uh, of taxable income, that's income minus all your allowable deductions, is taxed at a flat rate of 21%. And when that came in, that was certainly a big change because it used to be a graduated, graduated rate table with a top rate of 35%. So for a number of my clients, you know, going from 35 down to 21, well, you know, you go and have a beer and celebrate a little bit. Uh, there's all kinds of politics related to whether you think that's good or bad, but but it was a big change. So um, now with a new administration, as promised during their campaigns and so forth, they want to uh, bring that back up, and I'll have some comments about that. So let's, let's go, but that's uh, this morning, the Biden administration came out with a fact sheet. We'll have that, it's a White House fact sheet. It's in the show notes. I'll go through a number of the uh, more technical granular provisions in a moment. But you can uh, click on that fact sheet and see what I'm seeing that just came out in the last hour. Okay, and um, so let's let's review a little bit of the corporate tax rate history, corporate tax history. So corporations came to be under law around the Civil War in the U.S. Lawyers and state statutes says we can have this animal, this entity called a corporation, and we will give it a separate legal existence. Uh, prior to that, uh, it's either individuals or under old English law, there were trusts, various kinds of trusts. Those go back hundreds and hundreds of years. But um, the, the modern corporation had its genesis during the Civil War, and uh, uh, in a large part because of the railroad industry uh, and, and the 
whole point point of the process is to allow a legal entity governed by various laws to accumulate huge amounts of capital by selling stock certificates in an interchangeable way where they can trade, uh, they're uniform, uh, they, there's all kinds of issues that arose about people fraudulently making up stock certificates back in the early days before the Securities and Exchange Commission and putting aside all that fraud, the big explosion of industry was that you can have a C corporation uh, for tax purposes, um, uh, accumulate huge amounts of capital, be treated as a separate legal entity. It can go to the bond markets and float its own bonds. And it's the corporation that is doing this. It's not the shareholders, the individual people in, who buy the, the people who buy the shares. They simply buy the shares. And if the darn thing goes bankrupt, well, you can lose all the money you have into the shares. But unlike in the past, right, when, when an enterprise went bankrupt, if it was solely owned by an individual or a group of rich individuals, uh, the people who were owed money could come and take your house and take your gold and take your artwork and take, you know, whatever, you know, for rich people that they had. Uh, uh, so this ent entity was created. And the point being that, look, you you know, you're taking a risk, you're you're accumulating capital. This thing could go good and good or bad. And uh, we need a, a flexible way to do that. And then, of course, the stock exchanges continued to um, grow. Again, there were stock exchanges way back uh, uh, under Dutch rules, uh, even even before the U.S. They were some of the most progressive uh, uh, people, the Dutch, in creating markets. Uh, you may recall the, the tulip market uh, way back in the 1700s and the collapse, or maybe that was 1500s. Well, anyway, so the modern corporation grew up largely in the U.S. Uh, following the railroad model, and uh, now they are behemoth uh, things with uh, tons of legal structure around them, uh, literally trillions of dollars trade every day uh, on the NASDAQ, the New York Stock Exchange. And, you know, largely that's a good thing. But then the tax issue came about that, well, this enterprise uh, has profits and needs to be taxed uh, in, in the view of some. And um, well, and that is a bone of, of great contention, as I'll get into in a moment. So the history was that back in 1861, uh, uh, and, and you're again, we're talking about Civil War, we're talking about the first big railroads, the first big um, uh, nationwide organizations, and uh, they, they passed an income tax in 1861, but it and expired in 1872. And the very interesting point is it expired because it was deemed to be, uh, after court challenges, unconstitutional. Unconstitutional. And the U.S. Constitutional George Washington made it very clear. And in some of the Federalist Papers and all, all those things, if you want to go back, they said, look, we are not going to tax income. We're not going to tax income. We're going to tax, uh, you know, uh, customs duties. You know, most of the federal government ran on customs duties in the early history. But we're not going to tax income because George Washington and the founders were very, very clear that who in the heck would work and put their personal labor towards uh, economic gain if they had to pay tax on their labor, on the fruits of their labor? Well, here now in this country, we just take it for granted. That's the way it was. Uh, it was largely t income taxes were very low until World War II. Um, and, and, and that was the way our political model worked. 
But uh, World War II, we need a lot of money real fast to build a lot of bombers and aircraft carriers and uniforms and bullets and guns. And so uh, the income tax rate shot up and it was directly imposed on individuals in addition to corporations. So anyway, they, they had a false start with the corporate income tax. Abraham Lincoln tried it. Of course, he was trying to find and he put on an income tax on individuals also during the Civil War. Uh, many of people said that was completely unconstitutional. But people also said uh, that the conclusion was, well, we, we were fighting for our survival as a nation under the Civil War. And so um, we're going to leave it alone. And indeed, to the credit of Abraham Lincoln and the, the following presidents, when the war was over, as he promised, the income tax on individuals went away. And so did the corporate income tax. And once again, the federal government had to find other ways to finance its activities. Well, uh, the corporate income tax was then enacted in 1894, but a key aspect of it uh, was shortly held un unconstitutional again in 1909. There's things about equal protection and so forth. So they enacted an excise tax uh, on corporations, like when you go and fill up your gas tank at the uh, at the gas station, you're paying a ton of excise tax on the on the actual commodity you're buying rather than the net income of the corporation. Uh, so then uh, then there, there was a ratification of the 16th Amendment in 1913 uh, under the U.S. Constitution because it became the political view that, no, and if we're going to have a big, useful uh, uh, federal government that can fight wars and, and uh, manage and regulate uh, commerce in certain viable ways, uh, we need to fund it. Uh, it the, the federal government, had, there was a need for federal government, and uh, it was too big to be funded by anything but an income tax, in addition to the excise taxes and the estate taxes and so on. Uh, well, anyway, there's, there's more to that. So the 16th Amendment to the Constitution was enacted, and away we went. So we had a federal income tax, both on individuals and corporations, and uh, we had the Federal Reserve, which we could do a whole um, podcast on how the Federal Reserve and the income tax interact in order to give the federal government the capacity to go to the bond markets and float bonds because the Federal Reserve can um, uh, and the Treasury Department can always rely on the income stream of income taxes. So they all work together in the financial markets. Okay, so uh, with that background, corporate taxes became constitutional. And um, and without going through the whole history, I'll put some charts and graphs on there. You can see the history of it up until 2017. And then there were periods where it moved around, but up into uh, to 2017, in recent years, the top corporate tax rate was 35%. And this is once you got over like $100,000 of income. Well, this was, this was thought by the Trump administration to be terribly uncompetitive in comparison to the corporate tax rates throughout Europe and China and Japan and, and Asia. Uh, um, it was thought to be uncompetitive. And uh, I, I have sit, sat in the boardrooms. <laughs> I have worked for companies and sat in the boardrooms. I can tell you, other than uh, generating more sales and getting new products, the most other, the thing that most otherwise motivates a corporate board to move a factory or hire people or not hire people is their tax rate. And so um, the, the Trump administration uh, uh, got it down to 21% flat rate. In other words, it wasn't a graduated set of brackets. 
uh, it was all of your corporate income was subject to 21% flat federal rate. Always keep in mind, you got to think about state corporate taxes here in California. We have an 8.84% corporate tax rate on top of the federal rate. Some of it's deductible and get into that. Um, but uh, uh, so it was dramatically reduced. And uh, one can say factually that a lot of business came back to the U.S. because of the lower corporate tax rate environments. We can have a reasonable discussion whether you think that's true or not. But uh, the, um, the uh, Democratic side uh, always promised, and now uh, with the election of uh, Mr. Biden, President Biden, said, well, we're going to take it back up. We're going to take it back up to 28%. So in the proposal and the White House fact sheet this morning, that's what they're, they're saying they're going to do. They said, well, look, we uh, passed a bill for $1.9 trillion back on March 11th, and it has spending all the way out for 10 years. Now we're going to pass the tax bill to pay for some of it. Look, I'm, I'm really think that's a good thing. At least they're thinking in terms of let's pay for some of this stuff because I am very much in my humble view, uh, believe that the federal government spends way too much money on a number of things and uh, and has huge deficit spending. So I certainly would agree with the fact that if you're going to have spending, you got to find a way, for, way to pay for it, either through new taxes or by uh, reducing expenses. So the reduced expenses side is certainly not on the mind of the Biden administration, it would seem. And so they're proposing a tax increase on corporations. So keep in mind when you uh, are dealing with tax rates, you have to first figure out what is the tax base because that that rate is applied to. Because you can have a very high rate, but if you allow a lot of deductions and exclusions and exemptions so that the amount of net income dollars that rate is applied to, you can actually have a lower effective rate of tax, even with a higher rate. And so it's really a two-part question. Well, okay, so you're raising the rate, but what's often the case is when they raise the rate, they also provide additional uh, deductions or exclusions, and then the effective amount of tax becomes uh, the same or lower. Uh, that now, now, that's not what they're doing here. They, they are truly uh, looking to get an increase in federal revenue. But always keep that in mind. Just because you change the rate doesn't mean the government's going to get more revenue uh, if you change the tax base that it's applied to. And then in the big picture, in my humble view, again, trying desperately to stay away from politics, um, the, sorry, the question is, well, uh, what's that comparable to, right? What's that comparable to? How does it relate to the other countries in the world? Because you want to have some balance, again, so you don't create what Ross Perot who ran for president back in the 90s, used to call that that big sucking sound where jobs are sucked out of your country because you have a, a, a lower, a, a, a higher tax rate than your competitors or the uh, amount of subsidies that are provided by another country are so much to the benefit of uh, doing business in that other country that uh, away go all your jobs. Well, the average tax rate in Africa is about 27 0.46%. All this is in the show notes. The average corporate tax rate in Asia is about 22%. The average corporate tax rate in uh, the European Union is about 21, 20%, 20%, 20.3. The average uh, tax rate in all of Europe, because a lot of European countries are not in the European Union, is 19%. And our friend to the south, Mexico, is at 30%. So uh, let's keep in mind that... Um, 
the China's tax rate is 25%. So again, you have to seriously look at what the tax base is, what credits are applied, what foreign tax credits are allowed in order to get to the effective, the true cash rate. Um, and I can't say that enough because uh, the press and uh, even business owners get thoroughly confused between statutory rates, gap rates under generally accepted accounting principles, and effective cash rates. And ultimately, what you really care about is the effective cash rate. That's what's coming out of uh, the company's pocket. So um, uh, here in California, like I said, we have an 8.84% corporate tax rate. We also have worldwide unitary rules, which would be a whole nother podcast. And uh, we have a single factor set. We have a single sales factor rule and a water's edge election and all these things that uh, whatever your state, California corporate tax ends up being when you work through that gauntlet of rules, the fact is it just gets added on top of the federal rate, although uh, it may be deductible in computing your federal taxes. Uh, um, not a credit, but a deduction. So the, the net effect is you may end up paying about 60% of your state tax because the federal government tax is going to go down for the state tax that you incurred. Uh, that was not changed under the 2017 tax set, where it was dramatically, the state tax deduction was dramatically limited for individuals down to uh, $10,000. Sorry, going off on a sidebar there. Okay, so um, um, if we go with the House proposal for a 28% rate, if that's enacted, that's still way lower than the 35% rate, top rate, that was around prior to 2018. So one, and that is certainly their theory that, hey, look, 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 we're still 7% lower than the top rate that used to be, uh, but not as not as far down as 21%. And of course, these are all terribly uh, uh, intricate political decisions. And as I said before, I've sat in the boardrooms. Nothing motivates a corporate board uh, more than you know having new customers and uh, new products. Than uh, in terms of who, how many people they're going to hire and where they're going to move their operations, than the tax rate that you're subject to or the tax holidays you're given by a particular jurisdiction. So um, uh, trying to wrap this up a little bit, we'll see what happens, right? Tax bills usually take a couple of years to work through, uh, get, have committee hearings, ups and downs, uh, false starts, uh, redos, uh, and, and to finally make it to a final vote in the past usually takes a couple of years, but things are moving fast in the Biden administration for various reasons, so we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, the the um, overall concept, I think, from the political standpoint, and, and uh, certainly Ronald Reagan was, uh, uh, re was restating what others before him had said, but he said it very eloquently that corporations ultimately don't pay any tax. They don't pay any tax, was his assertion. All the tax is passed on to the consumers in the form of higher prices, or they're passed on to the shareholders who are regular people like us in the form of lower dividends, that the entity itself doesn't bear the tax, and a corporate tax is a dead drag on the economy, was his view. And he, for his whole political career, very uh, 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 articulately and forcefully was pushing for no corporate taxes. But uh, President Reagan was not successful 
in getting that uh, uh, move to move forward. So um, those who are of that political view were very heartened to see one of Ronald Reagan's um, core objectives uh, to get the corporate tax rate, which for years had been at a top rate of 35 percent, down to 21 percent. To those who felt that way, that was very gratifying uh, in 2017 as an accomplishment of the Trump administration for those who feel that way. Others felt that it was terrible. Uh, on the other side, and I, I do, uh, I may be repeating a bit, uh, uh, corporations, the view is corporations have so much power and so much influence and so much control of the technology and so much control of the basic goods and services we need to exist that in some cases corporations are more powerful than sovereign governments and therefore they have to be taxed and uh, and they have to be controlled. And I, I see that point of view also. And certainly in the modern corporation uh, hiring, you know, that has, you know, uh, tens of thousands of employees and armies of lawyers, that is not a untruth. Uh, and so where you are on the political spectrum of, okay, how much, so I fall back to, okay, what are they doing in other countries? Not that we should, uh, we are different in the U.S. than many other countries, but it is certainly notable that if China's rates 25 and ours 28, uh, um, is that going to be to our detriment? Or is it close enough? Or, uh, or are we computing the tax base the same? So what's the effective rate of cash, not just the statutory rate? There can be a big, big difference. Okay, well, I hope that's helpful as an overview on corporate taxes. It's an area where I spent many, many late nights and years working at corporations in San Francisco, crunching out these returns, uh, dealing with the corporate boards, explaining how the rates work and how that helped or hurt our businesses. And it's near and dear to my heart over the last 30 years since Ronald Reagan, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, watching how it progressed. We'll see if President Biden's proposal uh, gets any traction and uh, moves through the Congress or is um, uh, modified in many ways. Now, with a um, with a credit to Deloitte, whose um, link is in the show notes, I will mention that they uh, uh, have looked into this fact sheet much quicker than I did <laughs> uh, and quickly have the following comments on there that the corporate tax rate will increase from 28 to 28% from a flat rate of 21. Um, increase in the effective rate on global, intangible, low taxed income or what's called guilty income to 21% with guilty on a country by country basis and eliminated and eliminate the exemption for a 10% return on the average adjusted basis for foreign tangible property, also known as the QBAI. All right, again, that's, a, that's three podcasts. I'm very familiar with guilty, as are many people in this firm. And uh, it is a very complicated, uh, it has its good points, it has its bad points. Uh, but to do what they are suggesting, in my view, uh, um, will not make it better. Again, trying to stay away from politics, but we'll, we continue on here. Uh, they, uh, they encourage other countries, and, and Janet now, uh, Yellen, Janet Yellen, the new Secretary of the Treasury, had comments about this last week that they want to encourage countries to adopt a strong minimum tax on corporations and deny deductions to foreign corporations on payments that could be allowed to strip profits out of the United States if they are based in a country that does not adopt a strong minimum tax. All right, so th there is a lot to think about in that sentence. 
Uh, again, could be an hour or two that we could go on about that. But uh, what I want to point out is, I'm sorry you're hearing the ding dong on my uh, machine as tax returns we've completed. It's going through our work process here to get out the door. Um, there, there, that sentence has numerous sovereignty issues. It is making, uh, um, it is making uh, our system and the system of other countries self-reliant or reliant, not self-reliant, dependent uh, with the view that somehow corporations who have international operations are getting away with something. I, I will, again, add a personal view that certainly the big corporations uh, have armies of lawyers and armies of accountants and Pricewaterhouse and Ernst Young looking over every corner and nuance. Uh, they're only getting away with what the law allows. Uh, so uh, I, I will say and leave it at that to say that there's a sovereignty issue with our laws looking to the actions of other countries uh, with regard to how they treat income coming out of the U.S. Big technical issue, moving on. Strengthen rules preventing U.S. companies from becoming foreign domiciled. Yeah, th these were known as inversions, uh, where, where your, your, your headquarters in Ohio, in one case of one company, all of a sudden moved its uh, headquarters to the Netherlands. Uh, there are certain tax advantages to it, but I've always thought that issue was overblown because if you understand the sourcing rules, under the sourcing rules on the 800 code sections, um, uh, uh, no matter what you do and where your headquarters are, uh, between the sourcing rules and the foreign tax credit rules, if your returns are being done correctly, you're going to pay U.S. tax on sales and profits earned in the U.S. What could be fairer than that? What could be fairer than that? But there's a political issue that says, well, you moved your headquarters and, and you're, you're taking advantage of uh, foreign uh, uh, tax benefits offered by a foreign country. Again, sovereignty issue. Uh, so they're going after that. Uh, again, too much to cover here quickly. Deny deductions for expenses associated with U.S. jobs, moving U.S. jobs offshore and provide a tax credit for expenses associated with onshoring jobs back to the U.S. I don't so much uh, disagree with that. It's all, you know, the devil's in the details. How are you going to do that? And I do have a, a bias saying um, um, let the free markets determine what they're going to do by setting general rules and not uh, granular specific rules. But okay, I mean, generally, I, I see the point of that. Uh, I have been in the boardrooms uh, where where it seems, wow, we're, we're sending a whole division over there, you know, to save a dollar or two uh, uh, per hour. And that, you know, there there's a, an argument that we shouldn't make that easy. I uh, impose a 15% minimum tax on book income for the very largest corporations. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, I, uh, First of all, your average congressman or senator has no idea what they're talking about. Okay, first of all, very largest corporations, so that's good. They're going to relieve uh, the small and the middle-sized corporations from having to do any of this number crunching. That's good. That's good. Uh, book income is under generally accepted accounting principles under uh, FASB and the GAAP. Uh, um, they're, subject, they're, they're subject to great controversy. Uh, Two CPAs could do the same financial statements for the same company and come up with a different result uh, uh, the, the, to, uh, to tax in any way the differences between gap income 
and taxable income, in my view, is folly. It's complete folly because uh, uh, they're not. They're not. A, your book income is not objective. Uh, a lot of uh, my audit brethren and people who uh, uh, follow the financial accounting standards boards would say that's not true. That uh, there it is standardized, but it is not. I can assure you, it is not. And so uh, uh, their their concern was: look at this company; it has a huge book profit, but it has tax losses. And let me let me try quickly. I'm sorry, I'm rambling on here. I say, why does it have a tax loss? Okay. You have huge book income for gap purposes. You have a tax loss. You have a tax loss because you spent the last 15 years building this company having huge losses. You spent real money that was either injected into the company or borrowed. You lost that money, and the tax law allows you to carry forward that loss from the lost year into a year of profit. You really lost the money in the prior years. So why should you be taxed? If in the future year you have a book profit uh, uh, that's different than your your, your taxable income, uh, because where where the tax takes into account accelerated depreciation that we all cheered for a few years ago, you have differences in in net operating loss calculations. Uh, now I know some of you are yelling at the at me saying, "Well, there's book NOLs too." Uh, I I understand, but that's but that's it, it's different. It's different. Um, okay, not to get too caught up in, in the nuance, but I don't like that provision at all. It require it, it's what they, they people what the Congress tends to do is say, hey, we have a set of rules here. Let's use this number as a base. Well, that's not really a good base, you know. Uh, uh, and and okay, moving on. Eliminate tax preferences that the administration says favors the fossil fuel industry and restore payments from uh, polluters into a super fund trust. I leave that one to you. Okay, there's a thing called the foreign derived intangible income. I've worked with that and they want to get rid of that. Uh, that that doesn't help um, uh, US companies try to go out into the world and do business. Let me tell you, uh, when, when you go to various foreign countries, uh, they have numerous subsidies, direct subsidies, withholding tax subsidies, income tax subsidies and deductions and exclusions to help, let's say, a company in Germany go out and do business in Russia or China or the U.S. They have all kinds of benefits. And the FDII, Foreign Derived Intangible Income uh, a Scheme, was put together. It's part of the 2017 Tax Act. It was supposed to help U.S. companies doing business offshore, and uh, they want to take it away. So you can decide what you feel about that if it applies to you. Stronger enforcement. So the IRS is saying, according to the administration, being the Biden administration, all of these provisions would be backstopped by enhanced IRS enforcement resources to make sure corporations pay their fair share of taxes. The fact sheet notes that this effort will be paired with a broader enforcement initiative to be announced in the coming weeks that will address tax evasion among corporations and high-income Americans. Well, um, okay, everybody should pay their fair share of tax. Uh, the biggest, in my view, root cause of the problem is that Congress passes laws that are almost impossible to audit, uh, almost impossible to get the returns prepared correctly. But And then you uh, sit down with your average IRS employee, there's some wonderful young person 
uh, they have various work rule restrictions. Uh, they're put through some training. Uh, their morale is terrible, and they look for another job often as fast as they can. And so uh, there's real problems in administrating the overwhelming complexity of the tax law. So uh, everybody should pay their correct tax. As I said in the outset of this podcast, you want to get an A-plus on every tax return you file. Uh, but the rules are really overwhelming, and uh, um, both parties have uh, have shied away from beefing up enforcement at the IRS. And uh, even if you do throw dollars at it, it some of these calculations are just uh, unbelievable, and you can't expect even your average, hardworking, normal uh, IRS agent to even be able to understand half of this stuff. And I, I wish they would go away from complexity rather than throwing dollars at auditing complexity. Okay, nothing is in the fact sheet about the individual side of taxes, so that's good. Again, uh, credit to Deloitte uh, on some of this summary that I just went through. They, they, uh, they went through it this morning and threw it up on a link. The link's in our show notes. And that's what I have to say about that. I hope that part was informative. So the last thing I want to mention, um, uh, well, uh, yes, a, a couple of things. One, uh, please note that with the unemployment compensation exemption for $10,200, please make sure, and your tax software should do this right. Uh, many states uh, don't give any exemption for unemployment uh, benefits. It's all taxable. It's all taxable. Idaho, Colorado. Uh, New Mexico, Kentucky, uh, Mississippi, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, West Virginia, New York, and Maryland. Uh, the federal government gives an exemption. Got to add it right back when you compute your state taxes. Some give some partial exemption. I won't go through all that. We're going to put an, a map of the U.S. in the show notes with various colors. But uh, again, if you tell your tax software which state you're in, which of course you will in your address, it should be able to figure that out for you. Okay, now from the shame, shame, shame department, shame, 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 the California tax or penalty if uh, you are unable or didn't get a health insurance in 2020 is horrible, 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 horrible. I've put in the show notes form, Franchise Tax Board form 3853, and the link to the instructions. And um, uh, it is 18 pages. So, you know, the way when you're doing tax returns, you fight your way through the federal return, you get all the client information, do all the calculations, you come over and all that rolls into the state return. In the state return, there's usually one or two or three different adjustments because state laws are different. California is one that has a lot of differences. Michigan has a bunch of them. Uh, New York has a bunch. But most states say, look, we're just going to take the federal taxable income the tax base and apply a different rate to it. Uh, of course, not a, the federal rate of tax, but the lower, much lower uh, state rate. A lot of states are tax-free. You know, Florida, Washington State, Alaska, Wyoming, uh, Texas. I know I'm forgetting a few, but uh, so of course you don't even file a form. But uh, most states, they call them piggyback states. They just take the federal taxable income, apply a different rate, Maybe they add back the state taxes. They don't let you uh, uh, allow you to deduct taxes paid to your own state and competing taxable income. But that's it. Very quick. Very, very quick. California, when the um, uh, ACA uh, um, the, and the Obamacare tax uh, under the 2017 Tax Act, 
the penalty for not having insurance was lifted, uh, uh, repealed. Again, we can argue all day long whether that's good or bad, but it was. Our friends in Sacramento immediately sat down and said, well, we, we're going to put in our own penalty. So they came up with a regime and they came up with uh, uh, a set of rules. Uh, and this is my two cents. I may have it a little bit wrong, but the whole point was to push people to go to the marketplace exchange in California, California care uh, and go get yourself an insurance. Insurance, And look, I, I, don't, I don't blame them in that if you find yourself without insurance uh, because your employer doesn't provide it or you don't have an employer, but you still have uh, certain amounts of income, uh, um, they want you to go to the exchange because if your income's low, and I am no Obamacare expert, but my experience has been that you go and you apply for the insurance and your income's low, you're going to get a credit a credit that's going to offset most, and in some case, all the cost of the insurance. So they want people push, please go to the exchange. And if you get the insurance through the exchange, you are relieved, excluded, relieved of the California penalty for not having insurance, even though, uh, because you do have insurance now, and it costs you nothing because of the credit or cost you a very minimal amount. So they're trying to push people into the exchange. So if you become uh, uh, if you become without insurance for various different reasons and you don't go and call the exchange or go to the website or, you know, a lot of health insurance experts will help sign you up and take care of it for you. Uh, if you don't do that and get yourself insured, they said, OK, well, now you have to pay into the state coffers a penalty because uh, ultimately state sales taxes and income taxes are paying to keep emergency rooms and other uh, free medical facilities um, going. Again, you could have a long political discussion whether that's good or bad. God bless you. Please decide what you want to decide or ignore it entirely. My beef is 18 pages, <laughs> 18 pages of instructions. And uh, I uh, and I don't know how the average person, my, I like to talk about Phil, my barber. Phil the barber, nice guy, high school education, wonderful human being, runs his barbershop, uh, he can't figure out his PPP loan, and he can't figure out this stuff, right? And uh, uh, and I uh, and my staff uh, sat and read those instructions for a couple of clients. Uh, I, I will say with some bias that uh, most of our clients aren't in this situation. They have insurance. They're high income. They, they it's been taken care of. And I'm not judging. I'm not blaming anybody. It says, But when we have a few uh, people that are um, subject to these rules and and – you can't get a master's degree. You don't have time. Nobody has time to get a master's degree reading these instructions. So the FTB puts up a website, say, well, okay, of course you can't read this. Here, work through our calculator and go through this and we'll help you out. Okay. Well, uh, my point is you finish your federal return, you should be able to do the state return usually fairly quickly. And then you, if your poor client hits this issue, uh, all of a sudden it's a hard stop and everybody's got to slow down and see if one of the various exclusions apply if you didn't have insurance. So they could have made it simple. They made it really, really complicated, 18 pages. And shame, shame, not on, not on the political decision to have a penalty. I leave that up to you. But my goodness, come up with a way to do it that's less than 18 pages. Uh, uh, especially these are people who have had some uh, uh, challenges, right? They, they don't have insurance for some reason. Uh, has to be a better way. Faster, better, cheaper, more elegant. All new rules should be that way. It's one of my favorite sayings, and um, I'm just pointing that out. Okay, so 
Um, I hope you find this information helpful. We'll see what the Biden administration does. Uh, we continue to fight through this uh, tax season. Uh, the individual due date is May 17th, not April 15th, but watch those first quarter estimates if you pay estimated tax payments as opposed to withholding. That first quarter estimate is still due April 15th. Uh, just the returns are uh, uh, for the prior year uh, automatically extended and payments on the prior year are extended to May 17th. So a little bit of, uh, why do I say that? Because in the prior year, um, uh, everything was deferred from April 15th to June 15th last year 2000, for the in 2020 for the 2019 return. This year, uh, they did a little bit different. They said the due date's going from April 15th to May 17th because the 15th on a, on a weekend, so it's always the next Monday. And even though we're going to let you extend the time to file and time to pay your 2020 return, uh, uh, amounts and file your return, uh, you can't skip the April 15th estimated uh, due date. Now, some of you professionals are out there saying, well, what if I overpay my extension payment for 2020 and then apply it back to my, 2015, uh, my 2021 April 15th first, first quarter estimate? Um, if you're following me at all, that's a little trick that can be used. I don't think that works that you can pay something after April 15th, even as an overpayment on your extension and have it be applied to an estimated tax due date that was before the extension date. Maybe the IRS will clarify that. Um, that just applies to very few people. So I won't ramble on about that too much. All right, hope this helps and uh, hope you're enjoying some of the good weather. I got to get back to work. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye now.